Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Fool's Day. Be careful out there. Don't let anybody make a dope out of you. Okay? April Fool's Day. Think about it. Um. Yeah, I've got a few things going this morning. So, the Mensa Brothers are going to join us. And we have a discussion about Force Design 2030. And a concept that I call being a high-functioning conformist. I think it's one of the things that plagues the American military. I think it's uh, it's a concept that takes root when you can now see everything your subordinates do. Commanders that are supposed to be independent people, except you watch them every day. You monitor the data. You you control them via email, right? You have access to them 24 hours a day, seven days a week via cell phone. So your conformity is really important. To stand apart, to be different, not so valued by the organization. And now we can enforce that shit. So I want to talk about that idea today. So uh, on this Friday, April Fool's Day, without further ado, my friends, the Mensa Brothers. On this Friday... April Fool's Day. Hey, so just a memo to everybody. Be careful out there, okay? Uh, all, all, all you Twitter people, right? All you people that like to comment on everything on Facebook, I'm just going to warn you, be careful today. Um, joining me are, are my friends, the Mensa Brothers. And uh, from Southern California, I think, is Jeff Kenny. Jeff, how are you? I'm good, Mac. And I am, yes. I'm here in San Clemente. Thanks. All right. Can we get a can we get an after action report on your mom's birthday? After all the dust settled, um, well, my mom's birthday was the beginning of March. The right. last thing I did was the retirement for John Bylas out in uh, in uh, Barstow, and uh, I can give you a little vignette that might be amusing that won't last very long at all. When I was getting on the airplane to go from here to Vegas, and the plan was to fly to Vegas then drive back to Barstow with guys who are going to meet us in Vegas from my first advisor team. And Lori and I are in the airplane. She likes the window seat, and I like the aisle so I can get up to take a leak and so forth. And it's crowded. It's a Spirit Airlines. And I get a phone call, and it's uh, Owen Lovejoy. Some of you guys might know him. He, and he always says the same thing when he calls me. And I say the same thing to him. We go, are you jacking up? And it's a crowded airplane. I got it on speaker, and it rings throughout the airplane. Are you? And he's got a deep, soft voice. Are you jacking up? And uh, so people laugh, and Lori goes, put that goddamn thing on mute, damn it. And the, there's a guy sitting between us because she's in the, in the uh, window, and I'm in the aisle. And she goes, she goes you silly bastard. And I, I'm trying, but it's not working. And he continues to talk about jacking up. And he's got, you know, and – People are snickering around there, and finally I get it. And and the guy next to, next between us says to her, "You know him?" Because yeah, I know him. That's my my retard husband. And somebody in the back says, 
I gotta let you go, babe. Apparently, there's somebody masturbating here around here. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> but the whole flight, and it's like a 35, 40 minute flight. Everybody was laughing, you know, and talking about that, you know, that. And hey, I remember one time so and so did this. It really made the whole, you know, even the fucking the Nazi uh, flight attendants who used to be like waitresses and waiters. Now they're like mask police, you know, and uh, even them, they were, you know, yeah, I'm not really jacking off. But, <laughs> so I I always have my phone on uh, off off speaker now, you know, except for today. But no one can hear hear you guys because I got the the headphones in. But yeah, so so that happened. What the fuck did that have to do with your mother's birthday? <laughs> Nothing. My mother's birthday was old news, man. That was. A month ago. I know, but I, you birthday, know, after was, everybody gets home and then the dust settles, is there any post-mortem to your mom's no, birthday? No, it was a very nice time. I was, my Uncle Vinny and his wife, my Aunt Carol, were, were there, and they listened to this podcast religiously. Let's hope. Let's hope um, not. Let's hope they don't listen today. Oh, yeah. They'll hear the <laughs> jacking off thing. Forget it. Did you notice how we segued from jacking off back to your mother's birthday without yeah. seamlessly? Yeah, I, I managed to not mention things like that in the presence of my mom, but uh, you know, well, that's <laughs> yeah, that nice. Jeffrey. That's because yeah. you're a good son. I am a good son. <laughs> Thank you. After a lot of trial and error, I finally am a good son. <laughs> finally. Uh, yeah. Joining us from McAllen, Texas, uh, our bird watcher in chief, Tim Lynch, who's the the kettles of hawks are moving north, and Tim's a little bit down in the dumps because of it. But we're here for you, Tim. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what to say after Jeff Rose's introduction there. That's <laughs> that's spectacular. You know, I I can't segue into anything other than to inform you that the birds, the broad-tailed hawks, when they leave here, go towards the Great Lakes east of the Mississippi, and they fan out. That's that's you asked about the flight path. So March and April is when the big migration is is at its full swing, and and they're heading up towards uh. Um, heading up towards the northeast, but not not out towards the west. Don't want to go west of the Mississippi. I suspect it's probably vegetation and terrain that drives them. But yeah, it's cool. What, Still a few, what, what did few they, kettles. What do they winter? They winter down here. They winter down here in New Mexico. So the, what I'm seeing now is every once in a while you'll see a kettle kind of moving on the horizon. But those are all the ones that have been lazing around in Mexico, kind of getting late start up up towards the Great Lakes. But that's apparently uh, the the annual migration. Then uh, around October time they'll start coming back down here. Yeah. Right. So I I found out that much about the broadtail hawks, brother. How much? How is uh, the weather in McAllen? How is it? Oh, as I was saying last week, this is the one place in America you want to be, but that's no longer operable, bro. It's a hundred fucking degrees today. We're back into Kandahar, <laughs> and it's going to be like Kandahar. Actually, more like Lashkagar, but people don't know where that is. It's going no, to be I, like that until October. It's it's just it's just going to start being brutal. Is it humid? So, is it humid too? It depends. It, if there's if there's weather coming in off the Gulf, it can get really humid. But it's generally dry. It's not like Houston or New Orleans or Florida. It's generally dry. How but, can how can it, it be so different when it's so close to the Gulf? Because that's exactly why it's it, our our weather is impacted by weather moving north off the Great Plains in the natural kind of flow of things. When the when the when the weather systems shift around and bring in the weather from the east, bring in storms and whatnot, that's when it brings in humidity. Otherwise, most of our weather is most of our air is pretty dry. I mean, not that dry because it's a swamp where I'm living in. Essentially, a, a a big ass flood basin is what this is geological terms but it's not that it's not too bad it's not arizona but it's not houston so it's it's not it's not bad humidity interesting yeah all right yeah fascinated by the weather mcallen mm. and from yeah it's, uh, it's hot <laughs> 100 degrees already that is hot and uh from the greater kansas city area will costantini will how are you i am great happy to be here how's your dog he's gotta go so I gotta have to cut this off for about ten seconds and let her out. What's the weather like in Kansas City, or an unnamed, uh, an unnamed suburb? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think today's going to be a pretty decent spring day. It looks like it's all sunny outside. Haven't been outside yet. Uh, uh, high today of. I'm going to say in the 60s. Whoa! You know what I'm hoping tomorrow is. Oh, yeah, it says 59. Ah, 
The weather's going to be decent tomorrow. I was going to hope there was going to be a driving cold rainstorm all day. Because Kansas is playing in the final four, and all those jackasses are going to, if they win, they'll be outside celebrating. And I just (laughs) wanted it to rain all over their parade. Well. I mean, I get what I want. Right, right, right. (laughs) Can you give us um, a... um... Do we call it gambling? What do we call your your endeavor? Do we? Can you give us an update on your luck? Uh, we're all uh, watching yesterday this. Had a, yeah, yesterday I had a pretty decent day. Yesterday I was up about I was up exactly fifteen fifty five. Um, but it was a strange day in that I didn't win anything big. It was slow grinding to get up fifteen fifty five. One guy in the game I was in was up five, down three, up four, ended up down four. Another guy won four. I think a couple of guys lost a couple. But I was, like, slow and steady all day, which is not normal. Usually you get bigger swings. So that doesn't make up for the last two or three weeks, but it was a good day. Is, is this thing showing any sign of a reversal? Yeah, I mean, yesterday, you know, when you just sort of grind it out for six hours – Go up yeah. fifteen hundred. That's that's a good day. That's God Himself giving you encouragement right there. Yeah. yeah. There you go. He's giving you encouragement. Sure. Yeah. Hopefully it's it's not, you know, a false encouragement, right? That just is uh you see you can do this and then it just blows up in your face, but you never what know. What is the what is what does the scripture say about gambling? I, I don't think this it, isn't it, gambling. This is a game of skill. I don't think it's 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 keen on wagering, right? I mean so, the, the episodes me, uh, I meet I Let me think, get this right. I'm supposed to take my cast, spiritual guidance from cast, Father Michael McNamara. Oh, trust me, you you you've gotten worse advice in your life. Um, they cast. Lot, <laughs> I know. I they, used to get it from Jeff. <laughs> they cast lots for his garments. Is one gambling reference I remember. That's not. Yeah, that's, you don't want to be known for throwing dice for Jesus's robes and shit like that. I just me. Yeah, I didn't. I, I actually don't throw dice. And that I actually was, know guys who throw dice. That was those were Italians too, I think. Unless they were mercenaries, and I don't know who they are. But uh, anyway, all right. Um, Can I go let my dog out now? Or you're going to keep babbling. <laughs> she's she's like <laughs> you're on here. you're on Bluetooth, man. You can do whatever you want. That thing follows you. Do you know that? All right, you may hear it. Wait, we don't care. Um, all right. <laughs> um. I had a thought the other day about force design, and uh, I use the term high-functioning conformist. And I don't normally use that as a compliment, okay? And uh, But I see it as a phenomenon um, all the time. People that are uh, general officers afraid to speak the truth. And uh, my conclusion, this is just me personally, my conclusion is because it will damage the brand and keep them from uh, being promoted. And I was thinking about that in context of um, a number of people have sent me this link to LinkedIn that gets after General Zinni and, and General Van Riper and, and the quote-unquote graybeards, okay, that these guys, they just can't embrace change. And, and so what I know... What I know is that these guys are the guys who changed the Marine Corps relative to maneuver warfare. We were a two-up and one-back or a one-up and two-back organization, okay? And they took on, you know, the tectonic plates of the Marine Corps. Um, intellectually, they, they read and they, they progressively deepened and broadened their understanding of what this idea of maneuver warfare was. Then they... <clears throat> then they implemented it into the Marine Corps and we fought about it the whole time. And so, you know, the whole concept of mu sock, right. Is something that they evolved during their time in the Marine Corps. And so change to them. And they would tell you because they're students of of the history of the Marine Corps, change to the Marine Corps is, is a constant. And so, so this thing was in my head and I thought, you know, these guys are different though. And I thought, and I and I and I got to think of well, why, why, and this this concept of mine that I call you know high functioning conformist, <clears throat> and I started thinking about it in the context of the internet, when these guys were 
when when General Cindy was CEO of Ninth Marines, right at Camp at Camp uh, Hansen in Okinawa. You know, um, previous to that, General Van Riper is the chief of staff of, Ninth, of the Third Marine Division, and um, Van Riper had been CEO of Fourth Marine Regiment up at Schwab. When you were the CEO of Fourth Marine Regiment, you were literally on the edge of the empire. Nobody came out to supervise you. You made the decisions for the regiment. I don't know how often you would go down and, and, and have a, a meeting. Was it weekly? Was it monthly? But, it, I mean, you did not have somebody look over, you know, sitting on your shoulder, right? Constantly being, you know, guided for what you did during the course of the day. As a result, I think they grew, they grew up different in terms of commanding and having opinions. And, and, and I, I think being more independent of both action and thought. And so I, I contrast that to uh, the advent of, of email. And the impetus towards groupthink and the impetus to not stand out. And so um, I, I wanted to talk to you about that and get your thoughts about that relative to this idea, uh, this, this debate that, that will unfold. And, and I was talking to Mike Marletto yesterday, and I said, you know, Mike, <clears throat> to those who would call General Zinni, General Van Riper et al., gray beards and say they're afraid of change be very very careful of getting involved in anything in public with them because they will gut you they will disembowel you in in front of god and everybody and they won't it won't be a personal attack it will be purely intellectual and they'll humiliate you and the phrase i lured him in with a piece of bread and then i crushed his fucking head right that is booming through my head when I see these guys doing this, people doing this shit. But I wanted to get your thoughts. You know, I mean, commanding with in the age of Twitter, Facebook, right? I mean, I I watched it three years tactically. I love you know you know uh, General Berger said in his interview with uh, David Ignatius that you know one of the things that you know we give you know junior leaders so much leeway. We we do not. We, we did not tactically. Sometimes they had to take it because there was nobody controlling them. But we watched them with drones. We directed them in Merc chat, right? We, we watched everything they fucking did. And that's a different world to live in. It's not a decentralized world. It is a centrally controlled world. And to include the impact on discourse and, and the way we dis- <coughs> discuss things. So... I'd be curious about your thoughts after that long-winded, very articulate um, introduction. Tim? Well, it's funny you mentioned the internet, because I remember when, when the military had the land local area network. This was pre-internet, and we started being able to email amongst each others. And I was over, I don't know what I was doing, probably copying books at the Room of Losers, and those guys were just <laughs> mystified that there were colonels sending them email at 0300 on a Saturday morning. They're like, what the fuck? What the actual fuck is this? So you had a certain segment in the Marine Corps who was very anal retentive and, and, uh, and, and working very bizarre long hours that suddenly you could, you could see that. But, but prior to that time, a regimental commander and, and my impression of the Marine Corps as a whole, having been brought up to it, was a decommodified individual. Commodification is a social term that people use. Basically, it's 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 what happens to people when their entire existence, their healthcare, their money, their entire future depends on performing for a company. They are now a commodity. Marine officers were decommodified because we didn't have to worry about investments and shit like that because we got retirement. We didn't have to worry about different kinds of plans for healthcare because that shit was all taken care of us. We were allowed to focus on the bizarre world of the Marine Corps, which allowed us, I, I, th- I think, a, a lot of less scrutiny from the public and maintained that rather bizarre sense of the warrior monk cult that, that uh, we tried to foster amongst ourselves. So now that what you're describing to me with the high-functioning conformists is guys who were commodified, whose entire future depends on performing and advancing within the system they're in. And that was the antithesis of the core we were raised in 
because there was nothing worse than being labeled as a careerist, somebody who was only concerned for his personal career and somebody who managed. To, do you remember when we went to West Point to talk to those guys about your your thing? And then we also met the the human factors guy, you know, the killology. Uh, Dave, Gro- a dude named, Dave Grossman. Dave Grossman, right. And there's also a guy named Hooker right. who had written this maneuver. But he admitted right. to us when we were talking, he admitted to us that when he was a tow platoon or company commander, he didn't let his guys do anything because it would have fucked up his career. And we looked at him like, dude, like he was a turd in a punch bowl and never and didn't take him seriously after that. That was an attitude that we were fundamentally against. You know, Timmy, I have not heard that word careerist. But remember? That, it? Oh, remember? Man, that was That was a slight, bro. Oh, that was man. fighting words. Yeah. Fighting yeah. words. That was punching dudes out if you got called that. And yeah, now what you're describing is Yeah. And now what you're describing is the basic the basic uh, uh template to get to be a senior officer is to be a completely commodified individual. Whereas I thought the Marine Corps went to great lengths to retain some rather eccentric individuals in the past, a la how you end up with an Al Gray. Uh, apparently, our personnel system doesn't do that anymore. And, at, uh, and, and here's here's the, res- the results is Force Design 2030, uh, which which is an well, indefensible no, concept, in my opinion. I, I, I don't know if the result is Force Design 2030, but... The debate surrounding Force Design 2030 is certainly yeah. the product of it, right? So, yeah, yeah. so if that's if that's your grand idea, that's fine. It comes from where it comes from, but the 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 lack of debate around it, right? Yeah, um, and and we've talked, and yeah. Will's talked, we've all talked about in the past how commandants went to gain consensus when they had to make changes. There's a template. It's very simple, and it involves letting the boys get their say. say. And well, let me tell you, um, Mike Marletto said this yesterday. A good idea sells itself. Oh, I was gonna, I was gonna bang that. Out. I heard that. Yeah, that was an excellent point. A good course of action sells itself. Right. That's really all you need to say. That that was what yeah, I was gonna I, say. You know, just to amplify, <laughs> Tim says the Marine Corps used to go to great lengths to retain. No, they didn't. The Marine Corps used to be very diverse and lumpy, and and all kinds of different career paths. Okay. Uh. I had six different battalion commanders when I was a lieutenant captain and major. Not one of them had ever been on recruiting duty. Mm. Right? Yeah. Think yeah, of Al Gray's point. career path. Oh, shit. John Ripley, Royal Marine. I don't know what General Van Riper or General Zinni's career paths were, but we used to be much, much more diverse. Because the Marine Corps was much more diverse. And I'm not talking big D, I'm talking little d. Diverse, diversity today is count the beans, right? Which category do you fit in? Diversity back then was people did weird stuff. Um, they went out to barracks. They were on ships. Uh, General Blackman was the, was the ground liaison officer in the second maw. Yeah, as a I think a major and lieutenant colonel, general was, general Bice that was his job. Been, that was his yeah, job. John, look at eight, John eight. Allen's career path. Oh yeah, you know yeah, that's a good point. Uh, general Dunford was in Anglico. I mean, we used to be much more diverse, and I believe that that an attempt to raise quality. Uh, was command slating boards. So that board came into headquarters Marine Corps because you used to be able to get command at the battalion level by getting your ass into the division and knowing the division commander. And being a quality officer always helped, but knowing people helped more. So I believe by more centralization, then we went to centralization in selecting recruiting station commanding officers, and that became a path to command. And so I, my, my glasses are not quite as rosy as Tim's. I believe that there's been careers in the Marine Corps, um, <clears throat> for a long time and there, but the Marine Corps has driven careerism by the way, the path to continued opportunity to promotion and command. Um, so, I believe that contributes to a less diverse and a much more um, 
risk-averse officer corps. Uh, the idea that you used to be able to be diverse also meant you could take risk because there are a bunch of weirdos out there doing different things. I also think it leads to, um, we, we had this discussion about the, uh, you know, we're going to take the court marshals for, for uh, sexual assault out of the hands of commanders, right? Imagine taking anything away from the hands of a commander <laughs> in 1985, Right? Yeah, laugh. Back then, laughing. to command was, and and it was a thing that that I felt as a, as a commander. I think you all felt as company commanders. I actually want to be in charge here. Yeah, I spent mm-hmm. some time getting prepared so that I could be in charge. I don't like it when people take away things that are part of my command. And. Well, you were expressing I, you know, earlier, Mac, about when you're the CEO of the Ninth Marines, you're the CEO of the Ninth Marines. Yeah, I think there was a different attitude because we were more diverse. Uh, and now with a with the homogenization of officers and the ability to greater drive that six thousand mile screwdriver. So but, that's but what I, I think is the issue. I and then want, I'll I'll get off so Jeff can come in. Uh, let me make two quick points. I, and to me, I don't think um, the system didn't give us Al Gray. Al Gray's an anomaly, right? John Lehman, right? Um, <clears throat> Jim Webb, Al Gray. Yeah, that. No, right? I think Will's the explanation system, of, of the yeah. past was much more cogent than mine. It's a good point. And then we were lumpy. I like that. I like that analogy. The other point I just forgot. But it was brilliant. I'm, That's because I just up. praised Will again. I know. I, and, fuck, I, and, I, and I'm, fuck, I'm screwing you up like that, right? Fuck. Yeah. Right. And, and now, I mean, it's and now not Jeffrey's going to pile you know, on your t- oh, it's, that's, uh, it's that's okay not a true statement. I know yeah. it's hard not to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just say, I think uh, General Ludendorff is the first person who said, I coaxed him in with a little piece of bread and then I crushed his whole. That's in German originally during World War I. <laughs> and uh, so, actually, that's. That's ridiculous. I never thought of that as a maneuver warfare thing, but it's good. You know, I give it to you, Mac. The uh, the other thing I'd say about uh, the the things that we everything that the Marine Corps does, they ostensibly say it's for quality. Not that they're lying, but really what it usually is. And the command screening is an example. It's a way for headquarters to have more of an influence on on the Corps as a whole for that six thousand mile uh, screwdriver. Because the the the, uh, the quality of, uh, of leadership did not improve with uh, with the advent of command screening boards. It was the same number of guys get relieved for stupid things, and uh, and and uh, really, that, yeah, I, yeah, find, exactly I find that right. surprising. It is true. It is absolutely true. Immediately, it was true. The first bunch, you know, uh, guys are getting you know guys are getting relieved for the same type of thing, and. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you guys remember the CO24. I'm not going to mention his name. The CO24 uh, during, well, the rest of the Marine Corps was pretty much try, either in or trying to get in on OIF-1. He got relieved in Okinawa for doing silly stuff. And the uh, same type of shit that battalion commanders were doing before there was command screening. And then when it got even worse, and I went to, uh, they had that, um, that uh, uh, recruiting screening thing in 97. And I know because I was not on it, and I still became the COR at Pittsburgh. And believe me, I didn't want that job. Somebody thought it would be a good idea to put me there. So they would break their own rules with impunity if they thought they needed to. And and this is mainly under General Krulak a lot of this stuff started. He didn't like the idea of a division commander deciding who his battalion commanders were going to be. He thought that should rest with you know, the, uh, the stewardship role of the uh, – people at headquarters Marine Corps and, and, and with, so that's how we got that. I think, you know, that's why they did it. And, uh, but they never would admit it. They'd say it's all to make things better. Right. And so, you know, and then the, you made a real good point about the, the difference in regimental commanders. And I remember I saw it. Um, the last Vietnam, uh, veteran, uh, regimental commander I had was general Tom J- Jones when he was a colonel 
And be, and then after him, we got, uh, I think, General Sattler right afterwards. Hold on, and, uh, Jeff, you, you broke up. General uh, Colonel Tom who? Jones. Jones. Little Jones. Okay. He, he was a member. He was he, be, he retired as well because there was General Jones, the commandant, yeah. who was like seven feet tall, you know, and then Tom Jones is shorter than me, you know, so uh, but and, and he's an outstanding officer. But he uh, then we got General Sattler, who also was an outstanding officer. But the attitude the division commander had towards the two guys was different. And I know that General General uh, it was General uh, Livingston, Larry Livingston was our CG. And I, I saw the difference. Now, a lot of it could be personality, but a lot of it, I think, was he had a different relationship with uh, with those non-combat guys because, you know, they looked to him for uh, for guidance because he had the ultimate combat, you know, uh, experience, Larry Livingston, just like Ray Smith did and everything like that. So, you know, there was a difference. and they, And I think now... That difference is the rule, of course. Even the combat that we saw in Iraq and Afghanistan doesn't compare. I don't want to piss anybody off or hurt anybody's feelings. You're about, you're about, you're compare, about, you're about to. Yeah. About, it doesn't compare to the intensity that those guys went through as company commanders. And they were they were at the, at the pointy end of the spear in Vietnam. Guys like Van Riper, guys like General Smith, guys like Zinni. You know, it was a... It was an experience, and before them, all the years before them, all the regimental commanders were Korean War vets, and then World War II vets before that. So that is all gone. It's all gone now, and uh, so you know the uh, everyone's a lot more docile, I think, because they don't have that experience behind that 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 you know that intense experience is like its own uh, its own governor about stupid ideas. Would this work? In, uh, at Dido, would this work? You know, well, in, you, you, Jeff, uh, you, know what you, you right. know what you're making me think of is in, in General Zinni's PME, and if you go to the All Marine Radio, for those of you listening, if you go to the All Marine Radio YouTube channel, you're going to find General Zinni's PME. There's a couple different versions of it. One is it, it's, uh, I want to say, three or four parts. I think it's three parts. And then the other one's the whole thing in one shot. And in there, he talks about <clears throat> um, he talks about lieutenants coming out of the basic school and IOC. He goes, you know, because Ray Cole and <clears throat> and everybody here, you know, raise these guys to be little heretics, right? So they come out and they're gunning for you, you know. And uh, he said, and he talked about you know his PME program at Ninth Marines, and he said, so I bring this panel together, and uh, this is this is quintessential Zinni, right? It's, you know, it's, it's, it's great and, it, and it's fun and he's funny, right? He said, so, uh, Bill Fike, uh, John Ripley and, and yeah, G G General Van Riper. And then he, and he says this, <clears throat> they called one, the philosopher, one, the surfer and one, the Prussian, right? And he looks over at Van Riper and he says, don't wax your board general, right? <laughs> <laughs> And the whole, yeah. right? He does this in front of God and everybody, right? Yeah. And then he says, and so, and then he talks about his combat experience. And he goes, and I'm reluctant to draw too many conclusions from it. And this is, to me, right. the wisdom of a guy like, why I call him the burning bush, right? And he says, he says, because, you know, things may happen in a way that I believe they, there was a cause and effect. But in reality, there was no cause and effect, Right. And, and, and the example I use is I'm doing a movement to contact and I get hit on three sides in very short order. The guy in front of me I knew about. The guy to my right that I bump into is lost and looking for water. The guy on my left is digging a pit to bury somebody and we bump into him. I think it's a three-sided ambush and that's what we fight, okay? But it's not. It's fucking random shit that happens to you in fucking war. And, and he said, right. And he says, but you don't see it like that. And he says, so I'm reluctant to draw too much. And he said, so I bring these guys together and the lieutenants start asking him questions. And these guys all give very different answers. And he goes, they've got a shit pot, pot full of silver stars, Navy crosses. And he said, great guys. And he said, and they blow the lieutenant's mind because they don't agree on shit. 
<laughs> which is what just well, talking about right this, this yeah. independent thought based on their 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 individual experiences as leaders and things they fucking knew which yeah. which and and so when you got them in a group you know there wasn't too much group thing going on i mean they were they remember, had strong remember opinion. the argument i remember they had an argument general uh, christmas was arguing with general zinni right. about flak jacket yeah. yeah exactly and general and he's and the reason is because General Zinni's in one CO of Delta 1 5 in 1970. It's uh, when he's not actually going village to village, he's in like a uh, thick jungle and uh, hills. Where um, General Christmas, he's going house to house in Hue City where they know you're coming, they know where you're coming. And so they're two very different situations, but you know, both of them. You know, General Zinni is more like, hey, I think this is because of different experiences. We have these things we're saying, but I can see where, you know, General Christmas is just like, no, you got to have a helmet flat no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing. You know? Zinni's uh, fucking hysterical because he goes, yeah. yeah, you know, the whole helmets and flak jackets. He said, I think they're bullshit. He says, you know, everybody says, I always wore my helmet and flak jacket in Vietnam. Bullshit. Show me one picture of somebody with a with a flak jacket zipped up in Vietnam, and I'll kiss your ass, <laughs> right? And he says, I don't believe them. Their counter mobility, their counter awareness. You know, for every one guy they save, they kill nine. I don't believe in them. And and, well, and know, again, this is the guy who won't embrace change, right? It, Fuck off with that shit. It's uh, it's interesting in that that those people had absolutely legitimate experience. Yeah, yep. absolutely. And I and I just think about about my time, um, and the training experience that you have is, you know, it's real, but it is training. And the combat experience I had um, was long, dull. Mm-hmm intermittently terrifying and dangerous, but it's very different. Right. The close combat, close with and destroy experience that I have is zero. 28 years, 28 years and six months, um, seven months as a battalion commander. And I used to tell people before Iraq, and it's probably legitimate after Iraq as well. Um, I had shots fired around me in various places. Um, I think in Iraq, I had shots fired at me, um, just a few times. Right. And so I compare that to people that had, um, you know, that if, if you're, yeah, if you're in the room with who are the names? Zinni, Van Riper, um, fight, Von Ripley, Bill and fight. who else? Bill Fight. My, yeah, my I mean, you put man. those four in the room, right? <clears throat> they they can look at a concept, a change, an idea, and think through. Uh, for them, is all at the at the uh, at company grade level, um, right. but. Right. You can think through how this, you know, in reality, while we were doing that, and I think that led to a lot of our um, argument, particularly the basic school, because we're in the training environment where it's hard to really get your arms around <clears throat> the effects of fires, um, the effects of the human factors, fear, uh, you know, lack of sleep and all those other things. But it made you really think hard about them and try and try and manifest in that training right. environment. And I got to tell you, it, it it my time at the basic school in those discussions helped me immensely, uh, both as a company commander, but definitely as a battalion commander. Um, I, and because we we did deep thinking. And, and, well, you and know, that's and what, what you, I I think one of the things that's going to come out of this, hopefully is there's going to be a lot of people that have not been exposed to this kind of deep thinking, critical thinking, and, and your, what I would say, moral responsibility is to stand up intellectually and be accounted for. If you won't do that in this game of life and death, I don't even know why you're here. 
but but again, I, I, what, what what you're going to see, I think, that's so important is that is that these guys, they're not afraid to do it. I mean, I and I I said this before, but in that night, John Boyd, the Oodloop guys sitting in front of me, you know, General uh, Van Riper off to the right, uh, Bill Lind, Zinni in the front, and a bunch of John Kelly's there. You know, guys will be three stars, and and their example for us was right, uh, intellectually, you know, in the deep end of the pool. Right, reader readers before reading was cool, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and uh, but they were not afraid to get it on in public if you wanted to, you know. And they did mm-hmm. that night. They did that night. And so to me, it, it's the lifeblood of the Marine Corps. You know, go back to Pete Ellis. Go back to the development of you know the amphibious doctrine, close air support. All the things the Marine Corps has in its right. its repertoire. Is is this intellectual rigor and and scrutiny and debate, and mm-hmm. I, and it's scary though that that's not a hallmark of this. And the, to the people that say, um, to the people that say we, we we this has been debated, right? Um, let me tell you when these when when men of these kind of intellectual capital come together and tell you that they don't understand, you have a problem. And if you think you mm-hmm. devoted the, the appropriate level of intellectual rigor to this, you are sorely fucking mistaken. And they are going to show you. They're going to show well, you. That's that's a great point. It, like, and I have to tell you, the example you put out there about with General Zinni talking about, you know, what the true nature of the enemy was when he hit him in the front and the right and on the left. When you when you consider that, two up and one back ain't a bad way to go. <laughs> and you don't know sure. and you know and one up and two back ain't it? And, but what that shows you is you shouldn't get rid of all your stuff based on an idea because you're not going to be able to do you're not going to be able to deal with that uncertainty and the uncertainty is in, in General Zinni's example it's combat at the company level in Vietnam but at every level it exists and we don't know what's coming we never know what's coming and what we've done is we've divest ourselves of the things that make us flexible, that give us flexibility. And so now there's that much less. I remember when we did uh, Desert Storm, we did these weird things with uh, with mortar platoon, 81 platoons, because we got rid of our self-propelled like the year before, our 175 and our 155 self-propelled. Those would have come in handy in Desert Storm. And so we had to, but it was one less tool we had. I'm not saying we should have kept, you know, necessarily, you know, self-propelled, but it's an example. And the more things you divest, the less flexibility you give that guy when the balloon, as they say, goes up. Got it. Uh, any other thoughts on this this um, kind of group think, uh, internet, email, merc chat world that the modern command, Twitter, Facebook world that the modern commander lives in? Because I, I, I will tell you that it, I think it certainly contributes to, and again, I, I go back to the discussion about discipline in the Marine Corps. The only other, the only general officer I, I saw that spoke out about it was, other than General Furness, was General Alford. And, 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 and Jeff's around the Marine Corps. Um, but, and everybody knows it's an issue. And nobody says shit. It's. It, I mean, it, to watch it, it was like you got to be kidding me, man. You got to be kidding me. But I mean, so the the worst thing you can do as a general is to speak your mind in public. I mean, what the fuck is that? But I think that's where we're at because you don't. You, you just or, don't see it. Or be in charge and command. Have and the other the audacity. You can do. Yeah, have the other yeah. audacity to command. Um, final final thought on this, Timmy. Yeah, I'd, you know, after our conversation last week, when Will pointed out how many budgetary cycles this plan has been through, uh, I, I get depressed. You know, I think that we're going to see a lot of infrastructure stuff produced about it. We've been privy to some some uh, some uh, draft copies of that of that uh, correspondence. I think that will educate the American public some, but I'm not very I'm not very hopeful. I I I. I, every time we talk about this, I feel a significant hollowness in my heart. I I can remember fucking March 18th, what would it have been, 1995, me and Papa Jules Kennedy were had to lump this plurge. Remember that position locating reporting system we tried to yeah, try out yeah, in the 90s? Yeah. 
Yeah. And we were we were humping this thing out in 29 Palms. It was AWS. We were AWS students. I can't remember the exercise, but I was horrified to discover that, that somebody somebody could be monitoring like my platoon and company movements back at a regimental CP. I thought that was the end of the world because already they were reaching out and trying to touch us and telling us to move five meters that way or move. It's like, what the fuck, man? And back then we were sitting there shaking our heads saying, this cannot be good. This is not a good piece of gear. And uh, that, well, I, I think that that's just one of those prophecies. Maybe maybe we're afraid of change. Maybe I'm afraid of change. I'm like a gray beard now, but I don't think so. This does not bode well. Uh, I, liked, I liked it better when regimental commanders and most senior Marines were decommodified individuals, not concerned about promotion as much as they probably should be, not concerned about getting on a corporate board and making lots of money after they retire. All that shit was taken care of for them. They could be decommodified and just, you know, work on being their own peculiar, lovable selves, uh, which, of course, I say tongue in cheek, given our regimental commanders back in the day. They weren't exactly lovable. Although Colonel Brown at First Marines was a pretty decent, dude. I liked him. But yeah. uh, who? Colonel Brown. Oh, yeah. Gary Brown's dead. Yeah, yeah. Brown's he, uh, yeah, General. Yeah, he uh, he was. In, I, I, I enjoyed being uh, in his regiment. Hey, he was I'll, I'll tell you harsh. what, though. I, I can remember. Uh, uh, Colonel Brantner and um, uh, he'd go run around Margarita when 5th Marines was back there when Jeff and I were back there and he had like two thirds of his calf shot off yeah, you know and a, a big chunk out of his thigh and he, he when he ran he went limp he, he'd, he'd, he had this limp that he and you, but you saw that every day this guy mm -hmm. with this much of his leg wasted his two Navy crosses Right, and when you went to a PME as a lieutenant, and you fucking you sat there, these guys were fucking dinosaurs when they walked in, and they were. I mean, and 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 they would argue amongst themselves. Uh, uh, Marvin Hopgood, uh, he was mm -hmm. our he was our regimental XO. He it was him in 1985. It was the first time I ever heard about the book, The Forgotten Soldier. I I thought I was relatively wet, well read as a lieutenant, and I was. And he, he he mentions a forgotten soldier. I never like this is the best book I've ever w read on war. Um, forgotten soldier by, by written by a guy named Guy Seger. And mm -hmm. I was like, how have I? Ne I thought it was like going to be Goodbye Darkness by Manchester, you know, or some classic, you know, uh, you know, book that about you know American Caesar about MacArthur or, or and so, but it wasn't anything like that. And I mean, these guys were. Um, when they talk to you about their Vietnam experiences of, you know, of, of seeing a lot of combat, I mean, they were, they were not afraid, you know, they were not afraid to unscrew you first of all and tell you what you needed to do. But it was just, it was just a very, very different feel because these guys commanded because there was nobody else to command and they did it. They were not afraid. Jeff. Well, I was going to say, I was, when I was in fifth Marines, general, uh, John Hopkins was a regimental commander, and my battalion commander was uh, James um, um, uh, Williams, who was the company commander in Daido. He was the company commander for Vic Taylor, and he was a lieutenant. Holy so, shit. And so their their experience was, uh, we did these McCress exercises and shit. You know, uh, they, uh, I mean, they really knew what the fuck they were doing. You know I mean? They knew what they wanted to do. Let me put it that way. They were, you know what I'm saying? They knew what they wanted to do. Especially General or Colonel Williams, he retired after he was the CEO S O I West. But uh, and he was a great fucking guy, you know. And um, and that I think that was the difference. They knew they had a picture in their mind that wasn't a picture of past training. And training can be great. I think I had great experiences, especially as an officer, you know, as a as a lieutenant and a captain in training, force on force training, and the live fire stuff we did. Um, but these guys, the picture in their mind was was real medevacs, was real attacks, was real defense, and real sucking chest wounds and stuff like that. So they had a, a, a different view. Since I was in Iraq and Afghanistan, I, I saw a little bit of tight situations. And the way I look at things now is different. you know. Um, but I have to tell you, it doesn't discount the value of good training by any means. you know. And their input into our training made the training better. You know what I'm saying? Better. And, and we got it 
through the years for the different guys to good commanders, but also the, the uh, influence of the basic school. And I'm not even talking about IOC, just IOC. I'm talking about the basic school writ large. That right. was, those guys were into it, man. Right. They were into right. it, right. you know? Absolutely. Right. Well, before you go, I, wanna, I, I remember what I was going to say. <clears throat> if you're watching the gyrations of the American Navy right now, the number mm. of ships being decommissioned, and you think about the the way the Navy fought for those, the, the amount of money that been, Littoral, yeah. yeah that has just been dumped down the shitter. Maybe if the Navy had some retired officers, right, that had the that had the I don't know moral courage to stand up and say, "What the fuck are we doing?" Because now, I mean, this is you know I, I saw somebody a representative tweet, "This is crazy." This is crazy. We're retiring ships 10 years before their active life is over, and that's the oldest one. And and, and you're you're seeing this this is how well this COA was this course of action was thought through. And it's just it's 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 brutal. And but so it's inconceivable. I'm, it's inconceivable to think of a bunch of admirals doing what what the marine generals are are doing now. It's inconceivable for the army. It's absolutely almost anticipated in the Marine Corps because we're fucking different. At least we used to be. Right. And that difference is going away. Right. Right. And that is that, and in my opinion, that's that intellectual rigor and that, mm-hmm. and that open. <laughs> yeah. Will's dog's hey. mouth is all over his camera. You might need to take him to the, him or her to the dentist. Well, um, the, um, her. but her, that's so, true. So sorry about that. Um, and I don't know why we're so into gender pronouns anyway. Um, the, But that's the world that we were raised in. And when you see this stuff, all of a sudden it stops being rigorously debated. You get what you're looking at in the United States Navy, which is horrifying. Horrifying. That is the, that is the level of, of scrutiny relative to their mission and the American taxpayer dollar. Fuck. It's, uh, it's absolutely horrible. Will, final thought? Yeah, uh, two points. Item one, you know, Bob Work was the uh, undersecretary of the Navy uh, and, and like it or not, was a key player in the littoral combat ship and the composition of the current fleet. His retired Marine colonel thought of as a big thinker guy, all right, and justified with Ray Mabus, the composition of the current fleet, which we spent billions on in our shit can. And so Bob Work was noted as someone who had vetted the current force design from his office in as the assistant secretary of defense. So that's item one. Item two. So, the, the, item so there's two. a common thread. There common... might be. Item two. Wow. <laughs> item two. Tomorrow is the 50th anniversary of Ripley at the Bridge in Dong Ha. So um, you think of going to the Naval Academy, and and he got there probably about halfway when I was through. And if if anyone out there doesn't know what a Marine colonel looks like, dial up John Ripley's picture. All right, he is the the poster boy picture of a Marine colonel. And when I got there, you know, he was this legend, almost untouchable cartoon character. You couldn't, you know, he was. That's where you wanted to be, supposed to be. And I actually got to know him a little bit uh, late in my time there because of a couple jobs I did and uh, corresponded with him intermittently throughout the years. And it was funny. The guy was an unbelievable leader. And I think he, he, if there was one thing he didn't like is that he was known for about six hours of his life when he liked to think he had a pretty decent 30-odd-year career. Um, when we were in Iraq, we had three bridges up on the Euphrates and right before we left, we were going to blow two of these bridges because they were a real pain in the ass. And I called it operation Ripley and uh, we didn't get to blow the bridges, but I sent him an email and I said, you know, sir, I know you don't like to be known for just blowing up bridges. Um, but uh, I just want to let you know, uh, one of the things we do out here is we try and uphold the legacy that, that was handed down to us from people like you. And uh, he sent me an email back, and uh, I still got it somewhere in my Gmail account. And he says, you know, Will, it's funny. When I was a company commander in Vietnam, 
I spent a lot of time thinking about upholding the Marine Corps that had been handed to me by the World War II and Korea veterans that were still on active duty, obviously, when he was a company commander. And um, so when I see the discussion, I'm all for uh, let's modernize. Let's think about the future. Let's not be afraid of change. I don't think I am. And I've also been one of the ones to admit, I'm not sure I understand the force design. Um, the, the tenor of the people against force design has been, I believe, nothing but professional. I, I'm not sure I see the same thing on the other side of this. This shutdown, we've already had the debate, the dinosaur, et cetera. Um, you know, the legacy of the Marine Corps is a real thing. And it, and it was absolutely fundamentally real to me as a commander in a combat unit that I wasn't going to be the one that let this thing down. And it was interesting to me when I was in the ACMAX office. Um, I wasn't the one sitting in the chair, but I felt the weight of the Marine Corps. Because the Marine Corps can disappear off the face of the earth tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But I felt the weight of that legacy. And I hope that the people in these chairs today feel that absolute weight. And I hope that the people that are that have come up with a design feel that weight. And if they do, then they will welcome people from the outside, particularly with significant experience and thoughtful criticism, they will welcome that because the Marine Corps is important. We all think it is. We think it's important to the defense. Um, And if you fuck it up, it can be gone tomorrow. There isn't anyone in the Pentagon, almost no one in the defense establishment that's going to go out there and lay their life on the line to make sure there's a Marine Corps, right? The CNO's not, Chief Staff of the Army's not, Chief Staff of the Air Force not, Chairman's not. None of those people are. So the natural constituency of the Marine Corps is, is out here in America. I don't know a congressman. Right? So that's all I say is that legacy, it absolutely means something. You should think about it and welcome criticism. I called General Zinni. He was a colonel. And he went from, I think he went to to Stuttgart and was doing something over there after he came through Quantico. So I was doing my um, fire and movement thing with no hand and arm signals, no voice commands. And And I had, and you get to the assault fire technique, right? And Zinni does this thing where we, now we've got to this point, we've closed with the enemy by, you know, short rushes, right? We, we would call it fire movement. Now, next thing you know, we get to this line and we're all going to stand up, right? And my job as a squad leader is to keep everybody online, right? And he does this comedy routine with it. So, you know, it's like, okay, so in what situation would we ever do it? So Scott Sobka and I, I said, because Scott wanted to talk to General Zinni too, and so I, 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 I don't even know how I got a hold of General Zinni. I must have tracked him down on via phone. Yeah, the only time you do that is at Kent State. So yeah, that's yeah. what they used to say. No, no, no. They did. They did the assault. I've seen some of them in Vietnam doing it too. So, um, and if you read James Webb's Fields of Fire, they do. And also, sand in the wind. There's, uh, there's the assault fire technique. But you know what? It's kind of like our fire movement stuff. There's no command. The guys just do it. Right. You now they do it. And, well, uh, and, you know, but here's and so here's what so we're, we're teaching this in this dogmatic way at the basic right, school exactly. and 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 even at that point at IOC to some extent. And so I wanted to put an end to it or at least develop the intellectual piece around it and say this is the limited conditions under which you you, you would apply this. And so we call Colonel Zinni. And um, I called him and had a short conversation. Hey, could you set aside some time uh, and, and tell me when that you could talk to us? And he goes, yeah, call me in two days at noon. And I'm like, okay. So he talks to us for like 90 minutes about teaching fire movement. That's the kind of shit that these guys do, right? And he's talking about, he goes, Mac, here's what I want you to do. 
go over to the library on main, main side and pull the um, find the different versions of the 6-5, which is the Marine Rifle Squad, starting in like 1950 and go to 1970. And you'll see where that slides in, that sentence, right? And then we take it out, right? And then it gets back in. And he, and he, and he tells me the guy who, who was teaching at the basic school who got it stuck in there. I sure hope he's not going to start talking about masturbation now. Yeah, I don't know. I just, <laughs> I just, I just muted him. Um, and so, but these are the kind of that, that was the intellectual piece that you got from these guys. And so you were able to, you know, the, the intellectual rigor that you devoted, they would devote with you, whether you're talking about a technique, right? Um, or whether you're talking about maneuver warfare. And so to me, the great discussion is what is the Marine Corps in the, of the future going to be a nuanced force designed for and they and people will reject this, but here's what it's cast to be designed for the South China Sea, right? This stand-in force, and or is it going to be able to operate across the, the range of military operations, right? As it has always done, right? And so I think that is the that is the major tectonic and I maybe I've got it wrong because I agree with Will. You know, if you try to follow this discussion about all the moving pieces about force design twenty thirty, it's not it's a really difficult thing to track and, and then you'll get the yeah, that stuff's on the high side. We can't tell it to you. So to me, okay, if I dumb it down for myself, you know, what is this force of the future gonna gonna be? And if you tie it to a COA, a region, right, then you are marginalizing the Marine Corps because the next war you fight probably is not going to be there. And that's one of the arguments. You are designing your force all in on the least likely course of action. And that will get you marginalized and pretty soon off ramp. Uh, what are you reading, Timmy? Funny you should ask that because I'm still on Tenazon. Tenazon being the Tenazon being the Japanese for decisive battle, which started 77 years ago today. Oh, no on shit. On Okinawa. Yeah, yeah, April Fool's Day, bro. Today was the day we landed in Okinawa. And I found the reason I enjoyed this book so much was I, I hadn't remembered this. It's a it's a narrative history, which is always kind of fun. Guy writes well. Spent 10 years doing it, but he interviewed Japanese, Okinawan, and American participants. So their stories start at the beginning and get interspersed throughout the narrative. And that that was why I think I enjoyed it so much when I read it the first time. But it's a it's a it's a it's a decent book. Um, after spending so much time on the naval battles in World War II, the the four of us, it's it's fun getting back to reading about the the land component um, in in action. So I'm I'm still on Tenazon and enjoying the hell out of it. Got it. Got yeah. it. Will, what are you reading? Uh, I am about to finish uh, that book that I mentioned last week on the uh, Jewish revolt and the uh, Roman response. In the first century AD, it uh, again the book is not particularly well written, but it's very very interesting. Just things that that are sort of in the background on a lot of places that I actually understand uh, the history uh, behind it now. And uh, for all the time I spent in Israel, and I I really was able to get around and see a lot of stuff. I sort of want to go back and see it again now. Um, just because of this, I got a better map in my head of some things. So um, I talked about it last week. I, I don't have it in front of me, so I can't give you the actual name. Got it. Got it. Uh, Jeffrey, what do you read? I just picked up this book. Actually, it was given to me, uh, The Great Reset by Glenn Beck, about, um, about the basic corporatization of our governments across the world and how um, the, the drive to... Uh, Drive for a one-world government, you know, is now being also powered by business leaders like Jeff Bezos and people like that. So that's what it's about. I'm not really into it that much yet, but you know, it's interesting. I don't want to. It's kind of tinfoil hatish. I think uh, it could be. You know, I haven't I, I haven't read enough to make the judgment on that yet. But, got but that's what I got. That's what I'm reading. Got it. 
My boys, first of all, thank you very much for doing this. Have a great weekend, and uh, and we shall all be in touch. Happy April Fool's yeah. Day. Yep. <laughs> you too, brother. All right. Take care. Mm-hmm. That'll do it. Thank you very much for listening this week. Uh, thanks to everybody who also reached out uh, to, to express their sadness at the passing of uh, my friend, the chef, Kim Holmes. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, on that note, have a great weekend. I'm Mike McNamara, the Salmarine Radio. I'm out. <laughs>